0: Alright, welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is April 2nd now. New month, new us. The year of our Lord, 2020. We, as always, are happy to have you with us. We've got a jam-packed show tonight. In fact, It is so jam-packed that, again, we push like 20% of it down the road until Sunday because, believe it or not, when you're in the industry, you get advanced intel, and our advanced intel says nothing much is going to happen in the college football world between now and then. But we do have a jam-packed show nonetheless. Uh, If you haven't already, a lot of you are on the channel already, in the chat already. Subscribe to the channel and click the bell for notifications. That lets you know when we go live, when we post anything new, yada, yada, yada. We had a ton of new traffic for the Late Kick podcast. A lot of you had been asking about it, so there's a link to the podcast in the show notes below. If you're watching live, if you're watching the replay, whatever the case may be, head over there. And while you're there, only if you like the show, give us a five-star review and give us one of those written reviews too, because that really, really, really helps us out as it does when you click the thumbs up button as 19 of you, hopefully in counting, have already done. So tonight we're going all around the world of college football, quite literally. I'm going to touch on Oregon and Mario Cristobal and how If you're not already paying attention to them, you really need to be paying attention, and it extends well beyond the Pac-12, and it extends well beyond just Oregon football. I'm also going to talk about really something that I've thought about Brian Kelly and Notre Dame for a little while. I was on uh, irishillustrated.com earlier today with Tom Loy and the guys over there, and I was sort of bouncing around some of the observations that I've made and some of the theories I've had on Notre Dame, and some of the Notre Dame fans agreed, some didn't, but had really good, healthy discussion there today. I also, uh, we always get asked about stadiums, and so I figured, here we are, it's April 2nd, spring's canceled, we'll talk about some stadiums, and not just stadiums in the sense of, oh, how big are they and how loud are they, but maybe some stuff that you don't get to see, and yes, backed by extremely popular demand, we got more all-access stories tonight, and specifically... I'm going to go a story that's going to span over a three-year period, and it's going to involve Tennessee, and it's going to involve a guy that a lot of you love to hate on, even though he's captioned like six figures per month from the University of Tennessee to this day, and that would be Butch Jones. So stick around. We got a jam-packed show. Let's get started. And I want to start with the following piece of breaking news. Mario Cristobal's building a monster at Oregon. And I want you to pay attention to how it's happening because it's nothing new. It's a blueprint that's been used before. It is duplicable. It's hard, it's not easy, but it's duplicable. Do you remember the SEC before Urban Meyer? Take your mind back with me. Let's just venture down the road, down memory lane together, Urban Meyer, is at Utah, Urban Meyer's tearing it up there, and the SEC is back then what the SEC was. And if you were to use adjectives to describe Southeastern Conference football, pre-Urban Meyer, I wrote down uh, power, physical, big. You understand, that was the style of play in the conference. Teams were really good down here. And do you remember along with me when Urban Meyer got hired at Florida? A lot of folks, I can tell you, if you're not from the South, I am. I was here at the time, still am. A lot of folks in the South snickered at Florida going and getting some guy from Utah. And the thought, the prevailing wisdom was, okay, well, I mean, he did some stuff in the MAC and then he ran around the Mountain West, but this is the SEC. And Urban Meyer is about to learn a lesson in the SEC. Well, the only lesson that was applied was by Urban Meyer to the rest of the SEC. Because what Urban Meyer did quite simply... Is he took the kind of players that had been leveraged defensively for a long time in this conference, and he just also leveraged them properly offensively, which had not been done to that point in mass in this conference. You had exceptions. That's why, you know, a generation before when Steve Spurrier showed up at Florida, it looked like a video game for a little while because he did things so much different than pretty much anyone else had been doing in the conference. Well Urban Meyer did it too. Now there were still, make no mistake about it, elements of big and power and physicality. Urban Meyer just kind of spread you out to do it a little bit more, but he also incorporated athletes like Percy Harvin and the like in a way that maybe the rest of the conference wasn't. And so All of a sudden, Urban Meyer kind of turns the conference upside down. It's not saying he never lost, but he changed the way a lot of people thought down here about offense. He also changed and more or less fit right in with the way that you recruit down here. And that's also something that a lot of people in the South didn't think someone not from the South could come into the South and do it. Turns out kids just want to win and go to the league and they'll go wherever those opportunities are presented to them. Then he went to the Big Ten say what you will about his exit, say what you will about his entrance at Ohio State. But he did the same thing in the Big Ten. There were a lot of those, you know, gentlemen agreements and whatnot, and Urban Meyer kind of snickered and then said, what do the rules say? Uh, Do the rules allow me to do this? I I think I'll do it anyway then. Um, I don't need you to like me because I'm competing against you anyway. And so then he turned the rest of the Big Ten upside down. Again, that's not to say that he never lost but he reinvented the way they do things in the Big Ten. The Big Ten is all the better for it if you do what a lot of teams in the SEC did, and that is rise to the occasion. Saban came into Alabama, a lot of people did it in the SEC. Well, that's what you have to do. I'm I'm mentioning Urban Meyer because that is what Mario Cristobal and the Oregon coaching staff are in the process of doing right now at Oregon. Mario Cristobal, I think, is such a perfect fit there for a number of reasons. First off, And it's fortuitous for him that he came in the door at the right time. Typically, if you knew nothing more than geography and population centers, you would think that when I show you where the universities that make up the Pac-12 conference are, that USC and UCLA should just dominate. And there's no excuse, there's no reason why they shouldn't and why anyone else should even ever get their foot in the door. You get to recruit Los Angeles. You don't have to leave your office. You can toss a pebble out of the window, Ken Clay Helton, and hit 24- and 5-star kids. But facts and reality presented such that you could walk into Eugene, Oregon and be in an advantageous position relative to the rest of conference right now and maybe in the foreseeable future. So he walks in at the right time. Pac-12's wide open for someone to step up and rev the engine a little bit. And so Mario Cristobal got to Oregon and he stepped up and he revved the engine a little bit. He's seen it done. If you don't just quickly read Mario Cristobal's bio, you'll understand he's seen it done from his playing days at Miami, but he also got to coach and recruit under Nick Saban for an extended period. He wasn't at Alabama one year, he was there a few years. So he's seen it done from as a player and as a coach at the highest level, and he understands how to take that blueprint. Now I mentioned the word blueprint, And I want you to keep the word blueprint in mind because there's something different he's doing at Oregon. He's using a lot of what's already there, but he's also doing something different at Oregon that I'm most excited to watch. Their focus, by the way, is not being the best in the Pac-12. This is where you kind of have to have transcendent thinking. Yes, geographically, if you look at the imaginary lines on a map, you're in the Pac-12 you could be the best team in the Pac-12 and not be one of the six or seven best in the country right now any given year. And I think that you see that. I think I see that. And I think pretty much everyone in the Pac-12 sees that too. Hey, the players see it. That's why most of them are leaving the blueprint of the Pac-12 conference and flying clear across the country from California to play for Clemson and Ohio State and Alabama you got to put a stop to that. And if they're not going to go to Southern Cal, if they're not going to go to UCLA, you get them. That's what Oregon has started to do. It's an interstate right now. If you've ever driven down the interstate, I want you to think about this, because this is how I view the Pac-12. This is how I think Mario Cristobal's view worked when he got to Oregon. If you've ever been driving, and I live in Columbus, Georgia. I'm from Columbus. I live in Nashville. That's about five and a half, six hours each way. So I've done a lot of driving over the past few months. And sometimes... Uh, you have forever construction going on in Atlanta to where you have the interstate slow to one lane. And everyone's in one lane. You've been there before. And um, you're going 35 miles an hour, speed limit 70, but you're all in one lane. And so you just assume, well, something's happening. Either there's a wreck or there's construction. Well, Cristobal gets to Oregon and everyone's in one lane going 35 miles an hour. No disrespect to the Pac-12, but the Pac-12 has not done a lot to garner respect lately. The difference between Cristobal and everyone else is they had the good sense to crane their neck out of their window and realize the lane's open it's just no one's in it. The lane's open. So they squealed the tires and they're about to pass the field. I'm not saying you won't get pushback at Washington. I'm not saying that Herm Edwards and the guys at Arizona State couldn't get things turned around and challenge you. I'm saying there's no reason to think that's immediately going to happen, where there is immediate reason to think that Oregon is surging and will continue to surge. And so everyone assumes, in the past at least, that Even if you get a good coach at Oregon, unless it's Chip Kelly, who just does things radically different, hey, you're not going to be able to recruit the kind of athletes there that you need to. Okay. Well, I'll get to that in a second, because I think you can. I think you always were able to, as it turns out. Here's what's most exciting. Mario Cristobal's kind of blending proven philosophies to me. There's a lot about Oregon, about that neon green on any given Saturday, oh, that is proven And when I say proven, I mean, I told you I'm from Georgia. That brand means a lot to kids in Georgia. It means a lot to kids in North Carolina, Ohio, Kansas, wherever wherever you're from, Texas. It transcends region. That in and of itself is very hard to do. Everyone wants the magic formula on how to make their brand have mass appeal, especially college football programs who need to maybe recruit outside of their region to have success. Oregon's got that, and they've leveraged that fantastically have Mario Cristobal and the coaching staff there at Oregon. But here's what the proven combination that I'm talking about that they're using is. They're not going about things the way that Chip Kelly did. They're taking the same exact brand of football that he played at Miami and that he watched work to perfection at Alabama and he's taken it to Oregon and the difference, whereas Oregon may in the past have been built to run around you, Mario Cristobal is building Oregon to run through you. You would think in the past, They're not going to be able to do that. They don't have the athletes that an Alabama does. Well, they may not have an Alabama roster yet, but when you look at the way that they're recruiting, and I look at their last class that finished squarely inside top 15, and there's no reason to think that they won't continue to ascend. And the most important Kind of side note there being 13 different states represented in that signing class, and I'm sitting in this studio with Barton Simmons and Steve Wolfong on signing day, and we've got Mario Cristobal on the phone, and we're talking about kids like Justin Flo, and we're talking about getting all kind of kids, I mean, they got, the, they got Manning, Dante Manning, The, I think he's a five-star corner out of Kansas City. They went all over the country, and they'll continue to go all over the country because that's how they've built themselves, and it's a sustainable model that they built. Now, they just, by the way, landed the quarterback from Boston College, Anthony Brown. Now, that's on the transfer market. He's immediately eligible. They signed two more four-stars at the quarterback spot, the last recruiting cycle. You got Stowe on campus already, so there's a lot to be excited about with Mario Cristobal, and it always takes me back to when Urban Meyer got into the SEC, and he looked around, and not only did he say, I think I'll be fine here, he thrived there, and he ended up being the one that changed a collective culture, a well-ingrained culture. SEC football had been around a long time by the time Urban Meyer got into town in Gainesville, Florida. Well, hey, Pac-12 football's been out there for quite a while, too, and with limited exceptions, they've been mired in mediocrity for quite a while. It'll be Oregon football and Mario Cristobal in the immediate future who ends up shaking a lot of folks out of the collective coma that they seem to have been in if anyone's able to do it. And if they're not able to do it, I don't think Oregon has any problem doing to the Pac-12 what Clemson's done in the ACC. Being in a weak conference has not limited Clemson. You may have to go about preparation a different way. You may have to handle your schedule and your roster a different way to make sure that you're ready when the time comes in December, January, and whatnot. But Mario Cristobal and Confident can do the same thing at Oregon. So if they're not already on your radar, I would pay close attention to Oregon and in their future. Uh, Today, earlier, I was, as I said, talking with some of our Notre Dame fans. I wanna get some things out of the way before I go down this road. I'm gonna tell you what I think about Brian Kelly. When you see me make that weird face, it's because I just ate before the show. And so sometimes i have got food still settling, is what it is, you understand. I've always been higher on Brian Kelly than most people have been. Not quite sure why that is. I've always thought he was a very good coach. I think that he's a very good developer. I think he's a very good teacher of the game. I also think that because of those things, I always assumed he'd end up at a major SEC job or an NFL job. There were always whispers within the coaching industry that ultimately Kelly had eyes on the NFL. I can't tell you that's not true. I can just tell you thus far... He hasn't gone that route. Maybe it's because he hasn't had the opportunity. Maybe it's because he has not seen the right opportunity. Or maybe it's just because people were kind of misled to begin with. Whatever the case may be, Brian Kelly has been at Notre Dame for quite a while now. One of the best aspects... Of working at 24 seven sports is access to our network of team sites. And so I always take advantage of that. In fact, more often than not, if I know, you know, if Colin and I are looking over which direction that we want to go with the show, and we know that we're going to talk about your program 12 hours ahead of time, like I did earlier today, I went ahead and got on the Oregon board, but I also got on the Notre Dame board, gave you a heads up. And in the Notre Dame case on Irish illustrated over there with Tom Loy and the guys, I, I flat out told the Notre Dame folks, here's what I think about Brian Kelly. You tell me what you think. You tell me if I'm wrong. And basically, my thought with Kelly, whether it be the 2012 Alabama game, but not so much that one, but more recently, that Clemson game in 2015, was it? The semifinal game where they were competitive, but ended up getting beat by like four touchdowns. My thought was always that Kelly was going to look across the field one time, and he was finally going to say, you know, even my best here, I'm not going to be able to put together the kind of roster that they have over there. But I think I'm capable of it. There may just be limitations at my current place of employment that are not allowing me to do that. Now that's what I put on the board there, and I got some really good feedback. But I remember vividly thinking after the Clemson game, not the Alabama. The Alabama game, they got steamrolled and they weren't really ready to compete at that level. But I, like a lot of you, three years later, I think it was when they played Clemson in the semifinal game, I really believed, or it was it was more than that, I don't know, like four or five years anyway. I really believed that they were ready. And listen, I think they were much more competitive with Clemson that day. Your eyeballs bear that out, but that's the whole point. They were competitive with Clemson until near halftime. And then all of a sudden, Clemson pops them a couple times, and it's 23 to 3. And then you come back from halftime and it's 30 to 3. And I envision, I imagine Brian Kelly kind of looking across the field, game's over. Just like that, game's over. And you think, like we, we pushed them a little bit here today. We were competitive with them. And there's a four touchdown margin on the scoreboard. And margin's what it's all about. And I mean margin for error. Because when you have the kind of athletes stacked up that a team like Clemson does, a place like Alabama, Ohio State, same teams, we just mentioned over and over again, LSU. When you have that kind of talent, what you can do is you can be totally dormant for a quarter and a half, two and a half quarters, three quarters, when that 80-yard touchdown is always one or two plays away, the margin for error that you give yourself is so much wider than the tightrope that you have to walk if you do not possess that kind of talent. And Notre Dame has not possessed that kind of talent. There have been years they've been very solid defensively. There have been years they've had really good offensive lines. I'm not talking about across the board, and I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing their roster entirely. We're not talking about going 8-4 and four here. We got a real big boy conversation about going toe to toe with the big boys and what it's going to take. I had someone tell me actually on the board there, hey, it's no knock on Notre Dame that they got beat soundly by Bama and Clemson. A lot of teams get beat soundly by Bama and Clemson. Well, that's true. Like, Who do we want Notre Dame to be here? A lot of teams? Or do we want them to be in that rarefied air? And so the question really becomes, because I don't think I mean, based on everything that we see here, that I don't think Brian Kelly's going anywhere. I, I And you hear him talk, and a lot of that maybe has passed, and he's a Notre Dame for life kind of guy. And so really what it circles back to is, what would it take for them to ascend into that level? And so one of the posters there on Irish Illustrated had a really, really good take that I think I pretty much agree with. Um, here's how it went. Here's the blueprint. I think that Clemson, six years ago, is a really good one to look at. All anyone could talk about when discussing Clemson was how they choked away big games. They called it Clemsoning. Doesn't that seem like a long time ago? But you remember that, don't you? You remember Clemsoning? You remember how that little tiger paw on the side of the helmet always meant that, don't worry, they'll blow it. That was Clemson for a long time. That narrative has been rewritten. Poster continues. Then they got a generational quarterback in Deshaun Watson that elevated them above the plateau they were on. Absolutely did. It made them competitive against elite programs. Eventually it turned them into an elite program. I'm not saying Notre Dame can become Clemson. There's too much uniqueness there in terms of coaches staying, institutional buy-in, etc. But the blueprint, this is dead on the money. Listen to this. The blueprint of a generational quarterback leading a less talented team to playing with and beating the big boys, which allows them to then recruit better and possibly become one of the big boys, is what Notre Dame needs to find. That was very, very well put, dead on the money. That's what's got to happen at Notre Dame. Generational quarterback walks in the door think along with me, because that's what happened at Clemson. Deshaun Watson walks in the door. They didn't have bad talent. They didn't have Alabama talent. And they still didn't. But they had a generational talent at quarterback. And if you've got a true five-star future first-round NFL-type quarterback currently on your roster, that's worth 10 five-star players at non-quarterback positions on any given Saturday. What they can do, the impact they can have on the scoreboard, that's worth 10 five-star kids elsewhere. And so... That's what Deshaun Watson did. He competed with Alabama. The next year, he beat Alabama. But all of a sudden, what was happening in the meantime, number one was other quarterbacks were paying attention, namely kids like Trevor Lawrence. But number two, elite wide receivers were paying attention. Elite running backs were paying attention. And all of a sudden, this stream of talent starts to trickle and then flow and then now flood into Clemson, South Carolina like it really hadn't been before. Again, they hadn't been bad. Notre Dame hasn't been bad. We're talking about competing at the very top level of the sport. That's what will have to happen for them. Brian Kelly, either through development or recruiting or ideally both, is going to have to convince one of the top quarterbacks in America, very, very top quarterbacks in America, to come to Notre Dame. And the other thing that has to happen is you have to be able to uniquely harness a marketing package that takes into account the academic standards being a little more rigorous there, and you turn it into a strength. The whole thing with a quarterback in a Brian Kelly system, he's going to have to be sharp anyway. So getting the quarterback on campus that's right to lead them and to ascend to a next level to be generational, it's not going to be a kid that's a borderline academic casualty to begin with. You just got to convince them Notre Dame is the place to go. And then other quarterbacks see it happening. And then other talented kids see it happening. And all of a sudden, you go from being a team that's got... A good solid lunch pail type defense good offensive lines any given year good enough quarterback play good enough receivers good enough running back too you got a generational quarterback and then you got a couple of stud receivers either from the transfer market or from the recruiting pipeline that have joined us and all of a sudden now notre dame can put up some crooked numbers offensively because all of a sudden now they're a different caliber athlete offensively than they ever have been I think the poster was right. I think, that, I think that's probably the way that Notre Dame has to go. And so that was a really, really interesting kind of conversation there that's still going on, I would assume, over there at irishillustrated.com. But Notre Dame is not a place that I think, like I used to, Brian Kelly would look to get out of. I don't think he looks at the limitations there as being on par with maybe the way that I and some other people in the past, and maybe now, have viewed them from afar. And that's all that matters. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans what I sit here in a studio in Nashville and think about the Notre Dame program and what they can and can't do. It's what he thinks and then what he can convince other kids to think. That second part, obviously, being the uh, optimal point. All right, let's move on. Um, (laughs) I uh, I had a buddy, pretty rabid LSU fan. There are many of you. We always appreciate you reaching out to us. And so um, they were reaching out the other day and they were asking about Tiger Stadium. You guys have attended games there, but you don't necessarily get to cover games there. And so even though you may have been in the stadium a hundred times, there are just uh, different vantage points that you get to see if you're in our line of work that everyone's always fascinated with. We've been doing this with the form of storytelling over the past several shows, what, Colin, like four or five shows now. So I'm gonna do that to end the show tonight too, but I also wanted to talk about just maybe some different aspects of the stadiums. We're going SEC stadiums tonight, and then I'll go national later down the road because I grew up covering the SEC from my time in radio to my time in both sports and news, TV. So let's just touch on these for a second. LSU, yeah, it's going to be on the list, but I'm going to go five to one here right quick. I'm not going to do some big fancy countdown, but there's one at number five that kind of surprised Colin a little bit when I showed up because there was one that wasn't on the list uh, that I'm gonna explain. The one that's not on the list is Neyland Stadium. And the really only reason that they're not on the list is because to this point, I've not covered a game at Neyland where Tennessee's any good. And so it really, really impacts my perception of covering a game there for obvious reasons. Now, if you have listened to the show, you know that I think maybe the time is in the mid-range future where there will be very competitive games at Neyland Stadium again. So a lot about Neyland is great folks showing up, even though there are three touchdown underdog in the times that I've been there, obviously. Um, really modernized underneath the stadium. lot to like. As Colin pointed out, it's one of less than half a dozen FBS program stadiums on a river. You can drive a boat to the game. All that's well and good. My number five stadium, though, was South Carolina. South Carolina to me is the most underrated. Um, Yeah, I'll call them a major venue because, listen, relative to Everywhere outside of the SEC, williams Bryce Stadium is a huge stadium. You don't think about them within the context of like Bryant, Denny, Tiger Stadium, Kyle Field, but williams Bryce Stadium is a really fun place to go. It's very accessible. Also, they have recently modernized. Um, there's a lot about the underbelly of the stadium that I like. And I also really think that from an atmosphere, a game day atmosphere standpoint, I think williams Bryce Stadium is wildly underrated. This past year, I think it was, yeah, I was there for the Alabama game. And Alabama was a huge favorite. Alabama ended up winning the game by a substantial margin. That place was very, very, very charged And what it makes me think of anytime I'm at a place like that, and eventually it dies down once order is restored and the road team takes the lead for good, what it makes me think is man, like what is this place ever going to be like if and when Will Muschamp, in this case, gets the ship righted and maybe Mike Bobo comes in there and he is the answer as offensive coordinator? And all of a sudden, you know, when the big boys come in there, it's not South Carolina as a double-digit underdog. All of a sudden, it's South Carolina plus four, South Carolina plus two, South Carolina slight favorite. What would this place be like then? South Carolina is a fun place to go. Athens, Georgia. Sanford Stadium is the number four on the list. Now, Sanford's very unique unto any other stadium on this list. And One of the things that I love the most about the city of Athens and the University of Georgia campus along with Sanford Stadium is topography. Colin, how would you say this? typographically, typographically, yet yeah, geographically, let's just say it like that. It's built sort of into the countryside, a lot of hills. It's not flat. You know, it's not Kansas. And so the stadium is the same way. It's kind of built into a hill. When you walk in, the media entrance is this like massive ramp that looks like it would come out of pro wrestling somewhere. Got to be careful, especially if it's raining, which it was last time I was there when they played a and Saw Jimbo Fisher get off the bus right there to greet him. Jimmy Sexton, his agent. I digress, we've told a lot of Sexton stories on the show. Um, They got a media suite that's right there accessible right off the field, which is nice. Don't take it for granted, because not every stadium has them. They feed you very well. They just recently got unlimited all-you-can-drink iced coffee, and that's also something that you don't overlook, especially considering how arduous the drive out of there is after any kind of big game. And also, the fans there create a really unique experience. And especially now, this is a credit to Kirby Smart. They have re-energized what was already a very, very passionate fan base to the point where their home games now are recruiting spectacles. I actually was not at the Notre Dame game this past year. I was elsewhere. But the Notre Dame game's a perfect example. Colin showed you the B-roll of it a little while ago. That was a game where the result on the field, a lot of you called it a boring game. No one cares about that, they won. What people care about is if I was a high school sophomore or junior there, I still remember that. And if Georgia's recruiting me, that is better than anything they can put on a postcard. It's better than any kind of hype video they can show me. They just say, hey, you remember that night you were here for that Notre Dame game? Remember that light show we put on? You remember how we bathed the entire stadium in a sea of red beforehand? Remember how charged that was? Why don't you come be a part of that? what they've done with the game day experience there in Athens is pretty awesome. My number three is Alabama. I think I somewhat take Alabama for granted because Alabama and Auburn games are the ones that I've been to the most because being where I'm from, that's those are the two teams that we covered a whole lot. And because my role normally required and requires me to be the biggest SEC game every week, Alabama's in the biggest SEC game a lot. So I've probably covered Two or three dozen games at Bryant-Denny Stadium over the course of the last few years, several years. So you could argue number one for Alabama is my point. Everything about that place is awesome, especially if you have media parking. If you don't, get there five hours early. Uh, Or if the president's there, as was the case with the LSU game this past year, get there about seven hours early. But a game day in Tuscaloosa is awesome. Um, their team colors. I don't know why this stands out to me, but it does. The crimson and white, when you see a bunch of it collected together, it looks awesome. It's a a very good postcard kind of moment. Um, There is no buffet in college football. There is nowhere on this planet that feeds media better than they do at Alabama. I think it's somewhat inexplicable because you don't have to pay for it and it's overkill. However, I hope they never change it, cause it's great. And it's selfishly why I get there so early, because they also do not make you take a meal ticket, which means you can get all you want to. And I'm the kind of person who really, really takes advantage of that kind of situation. So everything about the game day experience at Alabama is fantastic. I actually think, cause they got that light show put in just like Georgia does, because Alabama's entire bowl is enclosed, When it's a night scenario, I actually like their light show. I think it looks even better than Georgia's does. Georgia's is awesome, but Alabama's because you got the entire bowling closed, I think it looks a little bit better. I had a buddy who actually ended up covering a game with me this past year, I think it was the LSU game, talking about how overblown that light stuff was. And I agree, 99 times out of 100, some of this spectacle gimmick type stuff that gets a lot of people riled up, like hype videos, for example, I've never cared about hype videos. Just like you would think I would not care about stadium lighting. You guys who have seen this stuff in person understand, you gotta see that stuff in person. Those light shows, the way they do that now, they got it at Bryant Denny, they got it at Georgia, they'll have it eventually at every stadium. It is pretty surreal. It doesn't look like you're in real life. It looks like you're in a movie, but you know that you're there in real life. So you, I don't know. I can't describe it, you have to experience it. My number two stadium, this could easily compete for number one, is Kyle Field at Texas A&M. I've only been to one game there. Finally got it off the bucket list. It was this past year. It was Alabama in town. Uh, Alabama ended up beating them pretty soundly. Texas A&M does not get the credit as a program, as a stadium, that they deserve because they're new to the SEC, still relatively speaking, and they're not geographically centered where everyone's around them. They're out in College Station, Texas, and uh, it's just like Missouri being in Columbia. You know, yes, they're talked about, but they're not talked about like Auburn or Georgia or Florida or Alabama are, and they should be. Uh, this, this atmosphere is insane. The stadium is insane. I told this story previously, I'll tell it one more time. Obviously, if Alabama's in town, it's the CBS two thirty three thirty 30 3 game, um, it's gonna be sold out. And so when I went to this game this last year, I assumed, oh, traffic's about to be a nightmare here. I got a buddy uh, who covers Alabama, who is a grad of A&M, who was at the game. And so I talked to him ahead of time. He said, I don't think it's gonna be that big a problem. And I said, okay, we'll see, you've been there. You'll be there already in town. I gotta come in on game day. So I flew into Houston, rented a car, drove to uh, College Station, not a big deal at all. I drove in and you would think that they may have been holding a booster event for 5,000 people with the way traffic was. And I never even came to a complete stop unless I was at a stoplight. get in, park in media parking, get in the stadium, got 107, 108,000, whatever there, it's packed, uh, capacity crowd. And I find him there and I say, you were right. How in the world did I just get in here and avoid all this traffic? Did I find some magic way? And he said, no, man, people just got here Wednesday. And he was right. The more I thought about it, they all just showed up Wednesday or Thursday and they're there for Midnight Yell on Friday, and so a majority of them are already there to where, hey, if you're driving in on Saturday, it's not all that big a deal. The entire underbelly of the stadium is modernized. It is such where you don't have to, from the press box, which is 10 miles in the air, by the way, much like Nealon, to get to stadium. You never have to walk through the crowd. A lot of the older stadiums, you do have to do that. Um, not that I'm against walking through the crowd. It just it's it takes a long time. And so everything about Kyle Field is wonderful. It is such where when you're walking through the press areas, it's like you're in a major arena, an indoor facility. It doesn't look like you're in a football stadium. Normally, the football stadiums, it's really dark. It's really damp. um, It's concrete, dirt floor. You never know what you're going to get. With Texas A&M, it looked like you were in, I don't know, like Phillips Arena or whatever that place is called now in Atlanta, Bridgestone Arena here in Nashville. When you're underground, that's what it looks like. So I love everything about Kyle Field, Texas A&M, completely modernized. And when, not if, for some people who know who they are who are watching now, when Texas A&M finally ascends to the A tier of college football under Jimbo Fisher and the full spotlight of college football is on them, Kyle Field will rightly become known as one of the very top venues in college football. It already is. People just don't talk about it like that. Uh, Number one is Tiger Stadium at LSU. I don't know where, I know where the idea that Tiger Stadium at night is the most intimidating environment college football came from. That's easy to understand. It is. It became kind of in vogue not too long ago for some people to start hating on that, calling it a myth, calling it overhyped. Well, I've been there for quite a few big night games against Bama. I was there for the day game against Georgia a couple of years ago, been there the last two Auburn games. There's no environment like it in sports. I don't think, at least not that I've experienced. And I've been to all these big stadiums. Um, Everything that they say about that place is accurate and then some, but you got to be there when LSU's competitive because their fan base is very smart and they're smart enough to understand when it doesn't matter if they invest emotionally anymore. Well, when you're there, when they're fully vested emotionally, it's a special, special place. And here's the other thing that stands out. It's a very uncomfortable walk. If you are not associated with LSU, I say this in the best of ways, in the most complimentary of ways, it's a very uncomfortable walk going from wherever you've parked until you get inside that place and we get there before it opens to the public. So once you're in the relative silence of the building itself, you're all good. Walking through tailgate areas, walking in, it's uncomfortable because if you're not with them, you're viewed as being against them. And so it's very hostile. Everything they say about it is true. It's a very hostile environment. But once they realize, oh, oh, you're friendly to us, well, then you're welcome, and they act like you're their brother. So, hey, that's the treatment I get when I go to LSU, and I love it. But if you are a rival fan, if you're a road fan, and you're rolling in there and you're wearing the colors, I'd leave the women and children at home. That's what I would do. You guys can do whatever you want to. It's your life. It's not my life. But it's a very uncomfortable place. Unless they know you and recognize you as one of them. And if they recognize you as one of them, it's one of the best places on earth. Easily one of the best places on earth to watch a game. So LSU 1, AM 2, Alabama 3, Georgia 4, South Carolina 5. That's how I rank the stadiums that I've covered games at in the SEC. This is a very fluid list. Wanted to leave you with this. All right. So the other night, I was uh, actually for the last several shows. We've done sort of a little storytelling session wherein we dig into the treasure troves of games that we've covered, and I tell you some stuff that may have existed behind the scenes that you didn't necessarily get to see. So I wanted to take you back. How well do you remember 2014? Especially if you're a Tennessee volunteer fan. Butch Jones is in his second year in Knoxville. He's the head coach there. He was successful at Cincinnati. He was successful at the stop before that at Central Michigan, I believe it was. And it looks like It looks like he's starting to turn things around. So I was at this game in 2014. It was Tennessee at Georgia. It was uh, September 27th, 2014, for those keeping record at home. And Tennessee pushed Georgia. They didn't beat them. They pushed them. They easily covered, I would imagine. It was a 35 to 32 final. Rick is still at Georgia for this game. And remember, this was a year where Georgia was pretty highly ranked, Tennessee still getting their act together, and so people left that game thinking, you know, good for Tennessee. And collectively, the mentality post-game was, whether you'd be in the news conferences, talking to the players outside the locker room, talking to media off the record that covered the Tennessee beat, the general feeling was, you know, there was a lot to take away from this loss that is going to be very relevant down the road if and when they end up being a contender. That was the feel, okay? So I'm on the field, totally empty stadium. I'm doing some stand-ups post-game to send back to Columbus for the news station that I was working at. So I'm sitting there fumbling papers around, and um, I was in between the visitor's locker room tunnel and the home locker room tunnel since then, they've switched it in the way that the stadium's configured. But back then, you know, you had tunnel here, tunnel here. This is where Georgia comes out. This is where Tennessee comes out. I'm kind of standing in the middle of that. I'm right near where the goalpost would be. And so my peripheral vision, I see an orange polo kind of emerge. And it's empty. I mean, even the stadium workers have left. It's, it's two hours after the game. The buses for Tennessee have already left. And I see someone emerge over there. I'm not paying much attention, but I, I kind of look. I double take, triple take. It's Butch Jones. He's all by himself. He doesn't have any of his assistants with him. He doesn't have, uh, the the SID is nowhere to be found. It's just Butch Jones. And I swear to you, he walks out of the tunnel. He's he's in his suit. He's got his leather briefcase and he sets it down. And just imagine seeing this. I didn't say a word, I just watched. And Butch Jones just puts his bag down and he stands there for, it seems like two or three minutes. And he just looks around, stands there with his arms crossed and he just looks around. Now, your guess is as good as mine as to what was going through his head. What I perceive to be going through his head is this is a guy who is finally letting the noise die down in his head, and they were competitive here today, but they lost, but I guarantee he's standing over there thinking ahead 20 years to when he's writing his autobiography and he's writing a chapter of it right now in his head. And that chapter saying, as I stood there and the smoke had cleared and the dust had settled and we came up just short, I stood outside that tunnel and thought, this is the last time that we're ever going to walk out of this place with a team not as talented as them. And the last time we're ever going to walk out of here coming up just that much short. That's how I imagined it. Fast forward two years, please, because Tennessee comes back to Athens again. I'm there. This, mind you, is the week after we had been at Jordan-Hare Stadium, where Les Miles won a game, then they overturned it, and LSU lost the game, and Les Miles got the axe. So it's been an eventful week, and now we go to Athens, and it's Tennessee at Georgia. Tennessee is undefeated. It's October 1st. It's 2016. You remember how this one turned out? Well, if you don't, let me refresh your memory. There were uh, under, it was under a minute to go, and it was Jacob Eason to Riley, really Georgia takes the lead, penalty, sets Georgia up or Tennessee up with good field position, Josh Dobbs to Juwan Jennings a couple of plays later. That was the result. Tennessee, last ditch, heave to the end zone. I'm just off camera right there. Don't worry about me. Worry about the player. Jawan Jennings catches the touchdown, and it's a true. Watch the celebration. Watch the ACL almost get torn. Oh, so close. All right, so good for Butch. So now we fast forward two years. He's not standing there all by his lonesome in the tunnel anymore. Now he's finally come back to Georgia, and he's won the game. And I followed him around just like this. Remember, folks, if you're going to film, film landscape. Don't film right side up, film landscape so we can actually use it. And so I'm filming Butch Jones and I just followed him. I probably got 10 minutes worth of footage on the field. And so I went from the dog pile with Juwan Jennings and I'm just filming Butch Jones because I already knew in the moment, man, this is what I'm going to talk about on the show tomorrow night. I remember all the way two years ago what he was like here. And now they pulled it off. Finally, they remain undefeated. They were about to send to number nine or ascend to number nine in the country after that game. That's right. Butch Jones had Tennessee in the top 10. They weren't always a dumpster fire like maybe the revisionist part of your history in your mind would indicate to you. So I followed Butch Jones. At the time, I was at a local station in Columbus, Georgia, and we had kind of neon orangish polos that we wore for the station. In other words, I looked just like a Tennessee staffer which was very convenient because I follow Jones and I'm right behind him and I walk up Tennessee's tunnel and halfway not realizing what I'm doing, I went right into Tennessee's locker room. Locker rooms on the road and at home in regular season play are closed to everyone but essential personnel and players. But it didn't matter because, in all the hoopla and uh, the celebration and the fact that I was wearing a matching shirt, I got right into their locker room. Now, of course, I turned right around, being the responsible citizen that I am, and got out of there. But that was what the scene was two years later. And I'll never forget, he comes right back out there again. Same tunnel maybe an hour later, not two hours later, this time he had an entire entourage with him. And I think one or two of them lit up a cigar there and they just stood there and five feet, I kid you not from a couple of years ago where he had stood there in silence. He had all the backslappers and attaboys and entourage around him that you'd ever want. Next week they go to a and lost in overtime week after that against Alabama splattered all over the place. The week after that, they go to South Carolina, they lose. They finish 8 and 4. The following year, he's fired. And so the Butch Jones era ends. But I'll never forget and this is why if you've ever seen Shawshank Redemption, there's a quote from Morgan Freeman, Red, cuz he's Irish, that really rings true in life and in college football. When Andy gets jumped, in the laundry room, and he's he's narrating the story. He says, I'd love to tell you that Andy fought the good fight and they left him alone. But prison is no fairy tale world. Well, neither is major college football. Because right at that moment, the writers of the world, the storytellers of the world, they were already crafting the story of Butch Jones and the rise back to prominence of Tennessee football. And boom, 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 three losses later, no one's telling that story anymore. And Three losses later, you're on the hot seat, and a year after that, they've run you out of town. That's how quickly it changes. That's why the ones who can sustain success, you really need to celebrate them, cause it's really, really, really hard to do. We talked a long time tonight. All right, uh, let's save some for Sunday. Again, if you haven't already, before you leave, 44 of you have, click that thumbs up button for us. Only if you like what you heard tonight. It helps us, especially as I told you the other night, when we get over that 50 mark, that 50 like mark, all of a sudden it triggers something these are from the YouTube overlords, not me. I just do what they tell us to do in order to matter. So uh, got a lot of you very active in the chat tonight. We appreciate that. I'll tell you what I'll probably do is sometime between now and Sunday, I'll probably put up a call for a Q&A. So if you guys have some stuff that you want me to hit this coming Sunday night, as long as we're still allowed in the building, which as of this moment we are, I'll try to get to that. So do that. And also download or subscribe to the Late Kick podcast. The link is right here in the show description, or you can search it anywhere you download podcast and uh, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment there because that helps us too. Uh, Wherever you have been, however you have been accessing our show tonight, both live and replay, we thank you for Colin, for Aaron, for myself. This has been the Late Kick. We'll see you right back here Sunday night. Take care, guys.